listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. We're told this in Deuteronomy 7. These instructions given from Moses about what should happen as they bring into this promised, cherished land, promised to Abraham, and now it's over 400 years later, and they're finally coming to possess it. Look at Deuteronomy 7 with me. It says, the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering it. Take possession of it and clear away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gershurites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. People you have no business beating in battle. This is what I want you to do. And when, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall not make a covenant with them. Show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Devote them to destruction because if you intermarry and intermingle with these other pagan nations, they're going to lead you away from me. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash to pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram, that's one of the pagan goddesses, and burn their carved images with fire. And we see this conquest of the promised land. It's not an empty and open land. It's a land filled with people, people who worship not the true God, but pagan gods. And we see this battle as a theological one. He says you need to conquer and you need to get rid of all the pagan stuff. Don't adapt it as your own. Don't take on their practices. Completely wipe it out. Why is this? Well, verse six, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You are a holy set apart people to be totally different from any people on the earth. It is God who's chosen them. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. It was not because you're more than number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I already delivered you from a wicked king, he's telling them. Don't go back. Don't go back to the slavery of another king. Don't go back to a wicked pagan king. You remember how he ruled. You remember his cruelty. You remember how you groaned and cried. You remember how he put you to genocide and killed your young. Don't go back because I love you. I chose you. And I'm going to fight these battles, even if they seem insane, to beat out seven dug-in nations and cities before you. He goes on. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant. He's never going to let us down. In steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment to a thousand generations. This is no flimsy promise of a promised land, but it will be yours forever. Verse 10, and he repays to their face, those who hate him will be a key line for judges by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. 
You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and rules that I command you today. Israel was God's chosen and loved people, a literal treasure to the God of the universe. It says, I'm going to fulfill these promises through and to you. So the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel and will see your holy life and see your God and come and worship that God. That's the plan. And Israel came, they take the land, they don't become like these evil pagan nations, at least at first. They drive out people for 10 straight years. We like to think stories about God are like a couple days. They're usually a lot longer. We need to be a patient people with longer stories. And Moses dies, Joshua leads them in this, but then Joshua dies and a new generation rises up. They're in the land. They've done 10 years of conquering, but in Judges chapter two, we learn this, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. Now Baals was their warrior, thunder, kind of everything rolled in God. This people had forgotten their God and went straight, as the Lord predicted they might, went straight to start worshiping just like the pagans. And they abandoned their Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. And from among the gods of the people who were around them, they bowed down to them. They provoked God to anger. And God was provoked to do exactly what he said. He says, I'm going to be faithful to you, but if you're faithless to me, I'm going to punish you to bring you back. And then in God's mercy, verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges, these regional rulers raised up to save Israel, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers walked who obeyed them in the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, we get this cycle that the Lord would be with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever a judge died, they turned back. And were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. A cycle established between God and his people. Look with me here. God's deliverance was given and brings them into the land. They conquer. Israel rebels, decides, forgets their God, goes after other nations. God disciplines them through these other nations by letting them win these battles, letting them oppress them. Israel then repents, cries out to God saying, we're, we're being oppressed. Things are, we're losing everything. We're suffering. And God's deliverance comes as a judge given. Things usually go fairly well of these imperfect to sometimes good, bad, and ugly judges. But when the judge dies, Israel goes right back to rebellion. And that would be the story of Judges for 21 straight chapters. And from chapters 1 to 16, we get a series of 12 judges that kind of match in their character, the character of the nation of Israel. And it starts kind of this downward trajectory, this downward spile, both in the character of the judge who saves them and the people's spiritual and moral decline to where it ends the book in complete chaos. 
from chapter 17 to 21, where everything has gone wrong, and Israel ends up not a witness to the pagan nations, but just like the pagan nations. And so as we look at this book today, we're going to look at the judges as good, as bad, and ugly, kind of cut up into three sections. And it starts with Othanel, this judge, in chapter 3, verse 7. And his story is rather straightforward and boring, but I want to show it to you because it's this picture of the cycle. Look with me in verse 7. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served Baals and Asheroth, two pagan gods. So that's bad. They left the Lord. Verse 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushon Rish Athaman, the king of Mesopotamia, for eight years. So for eight years, the Lord lets this pagan king dominate these people. And it is not good. These are evil, cruel kings. Verse 9, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer from the people who saved them. So the people cry out, God is merciful, God listens to them and gives them this judge, Othanel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord was upon him, he judged Israel, he went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rish Athamin, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. Othanel prevailed over him, so the land had rest for 40 years, and Othanel, the son of Canaz, died. So God would use these rulers to bring peace back to the land, to bring people's hearts back to God himself. And this story repeats over and over, building on those promises in Deuteronomy 7 about faithfulness and punishment. And then these, God, these judges, the stories get kind of interesting. All right? First, we got Ehud, a good judge. But look what happens with Ehud, verse 12. And the people of Israel, again, did was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord strengthened uh, Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because what they had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So he raises up a pagan king. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, most people were not left-handed. My wife is left-handed. She is very wonderful. Thank you. But back then, an extreme number of people were only right-handed. The only reason you'd be left-handed pretty much is if your right hand was broken or deformed or handicapped that forced you to be left-handed. And in all ancient cultures, for the most part, to be a left-handed person made you someone of suspicion, someone that you might doubt, someone you may not trust, someone you probably would overlook and uh, underestimate because they were different. And the Pete, what'd you say? Uh-oh. And the people of Israel sent tribute to this king, sent tribute by Ehud to Egalon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, 18 inches in length, and he bound it on his right thigh underneath his clothes. If you were a right-handed person, which most people were, you drew your sword from your left thigh to do this and look very courageous instead of getting the keys out of your pockets, look with your sword. So he is left-handed, so he slaps this thing on his right thigh. People are probably going to overlook a sword being on your right thigh, and he wears, you know, some baggy clothes. And then he presented tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. <laughs> and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, 
he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I got a secret message for you, O king. I think we see where this is going. He commanded silence, this king, and all of his attendants went out from his area, his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool of his roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a, seat, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. Hold it right there. So if he's on top of the roof and he has a special seat up there, they're referring to his bathroom. Gravity helps with bathroom things. He is up on the top of the roof. He has a special seat. We'll see it also has a locked door. This is this king's bathroom. So he, one, doesn't think very much of Ehud, that he's going to have a meeting with this man from his toilet, more or less. Second, they don't even check this guy for weapons because he's left-handed and probably has some handicap to his right. So this guy can't be dangerous. This guy has packing a sword on his right thigh. Here we go. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. They're not exaggerating. This is a big dude to swallow an 18-inch sword into his stomach. Big guy. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull out the sword of his belly, and dung came out. So if you're wondering if this is a toilet, we got like the full picture kind of happening right here. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. I like to think this is the born identity kind of judge. They uh, gets on the porch. He's like, let me get the drain pipe. Like we're out of here climbing down. Because then the servants come out. And when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Then they waited and waited and waited till they were embarrassed. That's a long wait in the bathroom. And when they still, he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took a key, opened up, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. God had promised Abraham, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who dishonor Israel will be dishonored. And you're going to see a theme throughout all of these judges that often the very way people dishonor God is turned against them in judgment, that he will repay them to their face, as Deuteronomy said. Elgon the king was indulgent, overeating, very fat, as the text says, and thus he dies on his very toilet, disrespecting people, and needs to sit there with his dung in his death, embarrassed in front of all of his servants. And these stories are meant to show this way that if you overlook and discredit people, well, maybe the people you overlook and discredit might be the ones plunging the sword of God's justice. This man invited his own killer in to meet him on a toilet and died. And Shamgar, the third, Shamgar, the third judge, he just gets one line, but it really hammers this point home of Ehud and Shamgar together. In chapter 331, it tells us this of the third judge. And after him was Shamgar, son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Now, here's some interesting things about Shamgar. One, his name is not Hebrew. It's actually from the Canaanite family of names. And son of Anoth is a local pagan deity. So it looks like God has raised up a very unexpected judge, someone who's not even an Israelite, to suddenly become a judge and savior of Israel. And he does it with an ox goad. Now, I scoured the internet to find out exactly what an ancient ox goad looks like. 
And I kept looking and looking, and, and, it, and by some miracle, I actually found a real live photograph preserved over 3,300 years of Shamgar himself. This is what it looks like. Bang. I know, a true gift to us. You know he, he can't be of Israel because he doesn't have the beard, but he has this awesome mustache, and that's how you know he is a, a pagan guy raised up to be a judge. Ox goat is like a big stick with like a hook on it, and it's shown, and these are meant to be humorous. It's not just us kind of laughing and giggling at these stories. If you were a Hebrew guy and reading these stories, you're meant to laugh and giggle at them a little bit because it's to say how ridiculous this is that God uses ill-equipped, unexpected people to do his bidding in the world, that it's God who's doing the saving and judging, not because these guys are perfect or awesome or all of those things. They're highlighting God as the one who saves and judges. And this theme continues with the story of Deborah and her kind of companions in the story, Barak and Jael. And Judges 4 goes like this, And the people of Israel again did was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Cana. The commander of Jabin's army was Caesarea. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. A chariot of iron, they are a full age ahead of all of Israel. They have the superior technology. They were not going to win this battle apart from the Lord. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah, appropriate, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 soldiers, and I will draw out Caesarea, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you at the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So she reminds this commander, hey, has the Lord not spoken? And she lets us into what has been spoken, that there's a prophecy and a commandment that, hey, you're supposed to go to war with this bad dude in Caesarea. Verse eight, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. If you will not go with me, I will not go. If the wisest ruler in Israel was around, I would want her with me too. Verse nine, she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road you're on the road which you are going will not lead you to glory, for the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak. Deborah's this wise leader. She's the only judge we actually see like doing some judging, actually serving and leading the people. And she exhorts Barak to obey the Lord. And we're kind of left to believe like, oh, I guess, I guess Deborah is going to be the hero of the story. She, this man's going to be sold into the hand of a woman. And so it happens. Barak asks Deborah, they form the army, they meet the armies, and Deborah encourages him to go for it, to be true to the Lord. And this is what happens in verse 15. And the Lord routed Caesarea, their enemy, and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword, God using actual people to accomplish his will in the world. And Caesarea got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. So this guy says, I'm out of here. We have lost and is just running this general of the army. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army, and all of the army of Caesarea fell by the edge of the store. There was not a man left. 
just as Caesarea on the run. Verse 17, but Caesarea fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Another person who's not a part of Israel. Just another person friendly to Israel out here. Verse 18, and Jael came out to meet Caesarea and said to him, turn aside, my Lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to, to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. But Jael took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. She went softly to him and drove that peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness and died. You got to get a hold of that temp peg to go clear through a dude's head and pin him to the ground. That is quite a, uh, an assassination. Verse 22, and behold, yeah, very clearly he is dead. Verse 22, behold, Barak was pursuing Caesarea. He's looking for the guy. We're going to get the commander. Let's get them all. And Jael went out to meet him and said, come, I'll show you the man you're seeking. So he went into the tent and there lay Caesarea dead with a tent peg still in his temple. Unexpected, unlikely, Jael, a non-warrior woman, Israelite, steps right into warrior mode, smokes the bad guy, fulfilling Deborah's prophecy that the hand of the woman would slay Caesarea. And the brutality of it is again another irony that God repays people to their face. And the irony is tragic, but it's important to see because in chapter five, Deborah just burst into song. That happens in the Bible. It happens in Disney. It's just a part of the deal. She burst into song and part of the song gets into wondering what Caesarea's mother is thinking when he doesn't come home. You know, they don't got cell phones. They're not Snapchatting how the battle's going. Caesarea's not coming home. So what's his mama think? Well, it teaches us a little something about Caesarea and teaches us about God's justice. Chapter 5, verse 28. Out of the window, Caesarea's mom peers. The mother of Caesarea wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his, char- of his chariots? She answered herself, Have they not found and divided spoil? A womb or two for every man? So a womb or two for every man sounds poetic in some way, but the reality is very dark. That would mean stealing all the unmarried women of a conquered people, probably 10 to 14-year-old girls, enslaving them to be lifelong sex slaves in pagan culture. We see Caesarea had an evil, satanic habit of this is what his army would do in conquering people. And it's a highlight to show why God wanted Israel to have no part of these Canaanites in their ways. He wanted them to have no part in their ways and in their so-called gods because they were evil. They were a people who normalized sex slavery, that loved torture and violence for sport, and at the highest level of sacrifice for them was to burn their own children alive before their idols. God's conquest of these people is not a harmless people, but he's bringing judgment on them, bringing Israel in the land as a conquest and a witness there's a true God and a different way to live. So God triumphs over this wicked enslaver of women by the wise Deborah and the hand of Jael smashing a tent peg through his temple. 
that God repays sin to someone's face. And it's Genesis 3.15 lived out in this very literal way that one day a child of Eve, the true King Jesus, will come crush Satan's head in very same way. Judges transitions here from mostly good judges to bad judges as Israel slides into moral and spiritual failure. With Gideon and Jephthah, Gideon is the fifth judge and he's a cowardly man. He constantly asks God for signs instead of just trusting that God's good and he speaks clearly. Because Gideon is so full of fear, he's, he doesn't fear God, so he ends up fearing other people's opinions. He fears the unknown. He fears his enemies. And as Shakespeare says, fear makes cowards of us all. And Gideon is the one who eventually raises up an army that God then thins out and thins out and thins out till he gets the 300 guys who like to scoop water with their hands when they drink. And then God uses his army of 300 to conquer the, the, the people reigning over them and win the day with a scheme only God could cook up. He says, get some jars, put some torches in them, get some trumpets, and we're just going to scare the other people. And somehow it works. And Gideon is a hero. But then Gideon is this winning, fearful judge. The people come to him and ask him this. Look with me at chapter 8. It says, the men of Israel come to Gideon. Rule over us. You, your son, your grandson also. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over. The Lord will rule over you. Come on, guys. The Lord's going to do it. And Gideon said to them, well, let me look, while you're here, while you're here, guys, I don't want to be king, but while you're here, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings, for, earrings from this spoil. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophirah. And ephod it basically turns into this idol. It's illegal in the law. He should not have made another one. And it turns into this idol. And all of Israel hoard after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. He became obsessed with it, built a whole private religion around it. And now Gideon had 70 sons, for he had many wives. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after uh, Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. Gideon said correctly, hey, I'm not the king, guys. I'm not the king. God's your king. Follow him. And that would be great if he stopped there. But then Gideon proceeded to make up his own religion and kind of drag everyone down in it. Then he proceeded to have many wives and 70 children, which is pretty king activity for back then. And that includes one son named Abimelech, whose name literally means my father is the king. And that son will grow up to murder all, almost all of the other children in order to be this ruler. And it reveals Gideon's heart that he was naming his sons, my father is the king. Gideon is a classic, say the right thing, do the wrong thing, ruler. The sixth judge is Tola, we don't learn much. Seventh judge is Jair, we don't learn much until we get to Jephthah, who's raised up and he's a mighty warrior. He's born of a prostitute, he's kind of a rough dude, he runs with a rough crowd. And it turns out that even though he's raised up as a judge, he doesn't actually know anything about God or the religion at all. He makes a foolish vow to God that if he wins this great battle, he'll sacrifice the very first thing that comes out of his tent. 
And first, this is not something God does. He doesn't do trade-offs like this. Second, God's word warns against making rash vows at all. And behold, the first thing that comes out of his tent is his only child, his daughter. And he's greatly distressed in the text for a number of reasons of losing his daughter, but he, he should know that human sacrifice is strictly forbidden in Old Testament law. That's a nasty, evil, satanic thing that the pagans do. Nothing that God's people do. And there's even laws in Leviticus to take back a vow like this, to say, if this vow would lead you to sin, don't do it. But yeah, Jephthah seems to know none of this. And he goes through with this tragedy for no good reason at all. And it reveals to us that now even the judges, Gideon was faithless and, and barely hanging on here. And now Jephthah doesn't even seem to know who God of Israel is let alone his law or his words. And it highlights just how lost and wicked and even the leadership of Israel has become that no one seems to know what's going on anymore. The people are lost without their God. Judges 9, 10, and 11 are Ibzan, Elon, not Musk, Abdon. And it brings us to this final ugly judge, maybe the most famous of them all, Samson himself. And Samson has this kind of miraculous birth with like kind of some promises from angels. They announce who this child will be. It's kind of a whisper of John the Baptist, a whisper of how Jesus will be born. It's an echo of how Isaac was born from Abraham and Sarah. And Samson is supposed to be this set-apart guy who takes this Nazarite vow that means no touching of dead things, no drinking, this life of obedience to the Lord from a young, young age. But the text is careful to tell us that, well, Samson grows up, kills a lion, comes back by the dead lion, sees some honey in it, and he's willing to touch a dead thing over some honey. I love honey, but that's a bad call if you're under a Nazarite vow. Then he marries a Philistine wife, a pagan, one of the tribes around him. That's not great, breaking Deuteronomy 7. Then he throws a big wedding party, a festival of sorts that would include massive amounts of drinking. So he kind of ignores that part of the Nazarite vow too. And his life is marked with super strength, but also super violence. This wanton murdering and revenging. And it's just ugly stuff. And it amounts to a judge who's just completely out of control. All of his days are fueled with vices and desires for anything but the Lord, occasionally invoking God's name. And he ends up with his eyes gouged out, blind, captured, his hair cut off, which apparently was the secret to his super strength. And he's left this blind rager, made weak, bound. His sin has led him there, bound in this like temple house, raging around blind. And it's this picture of what Israel is without their God. Yet Samson's hair starts to grow back. And he drops one big last prayer during his imprisonment. He's currently being spat on to entertain the Philistine lords. And Samson said to the young man who led him in there by hand, let me feel these pillars on which his house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson was entertained. It's probably this house temple. It's probably the palace of the Philistines. I have 3,000 people kicking it on the roof. They're being entertained by this captured warrior. 
Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all of his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. We got these two live shots of the, of the accident. We got him in his questionable garment uh, pulling down the pillars and the aftermath. Chaos. He bring, brings the house down. And Samson dies kind of just fulfilling his purpose to deliver Israel from his enemies. And there's this whisper of Jesus. Jesus doesn't die in his strength, but dies in his weakness to save us. Jesus doesn't kill anybody at the cross. Instead, prays for his enemies to be forgiveness. But in his death, delivers us like Samson. And after Samson, there's no more judges. They're this judgeless, kingless people. And Israel descends into madness for five chapters. And it repeats this phrase four times to kind of summarize up what's happened in Judges and what happens here at the end. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In Judges 17 and 18, a family makes a private religion again. There's a raiding army. An innocent city gets burned to the ground and everyone dies. It highlights even the priest, people in priestly background are now fully morally bankrupt. And Judges 19 through 21 tells maybe the most disturbing story in all the Bible about a young woman being sexually assaulted and murdered, then dismembered by her husband and sent to all the tribes in anger saying, look at what we're doing, look at what we've become. And his doing so actually launches the entire nation into civil war with each other which leads to more and more sin as the chapter progresses. And we're told this wretched true story to show that Israel has now fully become as bad as the pagan nations they're supposed to drive out, and maybe more so. And the book ends with the same refrain again, Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people had rejected following God as king, and they became a king to themselves. Each man and woman decided, I'll just be king and decide what's right in my own eyes. And the message of Judges is clear. Good things didn't come from that. Evil thrived from that. The whole nation became sinful, self-devouring each other in wickedness, just like the other nations. They needed God as king, or at least a king from God to restrain their evil and lead them back to life with God. And here's what I think we can learn about the true king coming, about the true king Jesus from these stories, these stories that are so wild, so disturbing at times. And I think there's six really clear things as you hear these stories and let them wash over you. And the first is this, that God is bringing a king in Jesus who is not temporary. That God is eternal 
Jesus is the man that was God and he is eternal. At the end of each cycle, the judge would die. And no matter how successful, no matter how holy he or she was, the people would wander immediately back to their sin. And Jesus is the king who dies, rises, and rules forever and ever on the throne that can free us from our sins and bring us to God both now and forevermore. Amen? Second thing we can learn is God is bringing a king who's just unexpected. He's unexpected like Ehud, the left-handed man. He's unexpected like Shamgar and Jael in the story that this man would be born in Bethlehem but raised in Nazareth, which is a nowhere town, that no one would think he's special apart from the angel's announcements at the beginning of his birth until he was 30 years old. We're told he wasn't a handsome man. He just looked like any other guy from Galilee. He's this unexpected savior that takes people by surprise. Third thing we can learn is God is bringing a king who is wise, courageous, and fair like Deborah. In a world that's full of danger, in a world that is confusing, God's king is wise and courageous so that we can actually trust him. Jephthah, we can't trust that guy. Gideon, no way. Samson, I don't think so. But you see Jesus constantly replying to people, giving fair judgments, teaching us how to live in a way that always leads to life because he fears God with with his thinking and he trusts God in danger. The fourth thing is God is bringing a king who knows his father is God, not like Gideon or Jephthah. Jesus never needs a sign from God. That's what the devil asks him to do in the desert. Do a sign. Jesus knows God is his father. In the same way, Jephthah is so lost in who God is. He treats his leadership just like a peg, and he has no understanding of God's word. And we see in Jesus' life, he tells the devil himself in that same desert in Matthew 4, that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That the true king will follow God, have God's presence, and live God's words, just as Deuteronomy 17 said. That's what the true king is like. The fifth way that God is bringing a king who is powerful, but doesn't win by might, but by his own weakness. Samson and Samgar, among all the judges, are seen to be the greatest warriors. Their might makes right. The spirit of the Lord uses them to slay tens, hundreds, even thousands of the enemy with ox goads and donkey bones with Samson. So the emphasis is not on the warrior, but God's power. He can use people to use these untraditional weapons. And Jesus uses his power mostly to heal the sick, the lame, the forgotten, and he kills no one, but he raises the dead all the time. On the cross, Jesus crushes Satan, submitting to death, trusting his father to raise him up. And the sixth way I think we can look at these stories and see about the true king coming is that God is bringing a king who can make us right in God's eyes. If we insist on being the king of our life, we will be right in our eyes and very wrong in God's eyes. If we insist on being king of our life, we cannot have Jesus as king. It is one or the other. 
Repentance and faith towards Christ is repentance from our life and taking our faith out of ourself to the King who created us and loves us all the way down. Judges, show, judges shows us that people left to their own desires will declare themselves king and be evil. We need King Jesus to save us from the inside out. We were made by God and we're made for God. And notice in the depths of wickedness, when God's people cried out, God is faithful to save. So it is with us today. Do you see your own wickedness? Do you see your own need for a king in your life? Can you own your sin and turn and repent to a Jesus who will hear you, forgive you, and be king of your life today? Jesus is faithful to hear your prayer and be more than a judge, but be the Savior King that we all need. I urge you, if you do not know him, to take him as king. Take him as the Savior who can deeply forgive you and change your life forever. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 